0: Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related
1: topics. I really do believe there's a tequila for everyone, whether it's a Blanco, whether it's a Reposado, an Añejo,
2: whether it's an extra In Mezcal, you need 10, 25 years to, for the plan to be ready, you know, getting all the energy from Mother Earth.
0: From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends, we hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. Hi everyone. Now before we begin, please note that this is part one of a double bill of episodes on tequila. It seemed that there was so much to talk about around this exciting category when I was joined in the studio by Don Julio Ambassador Dino Moncrief and Mexican-born Eduardo Gomez, founder of Tequila and Mezcal Fest. So, please enjoy part one. Here we are in the studio with a couple of fine fellows. We're talking about tequila and agave spirits today. So I am joined by Dino Moncrief and Eduardo Gomez. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Let's start by you guys introducing yourselves. What do you do? What what what, do you, what is your function in this world of agave spirits? Dino.
1: Well, um, I work for Don Julio Tequila. I have worked for Don Julio Tequila for twelve years now. Wow. Um. And I also have my own bar, Agave Spirits
0: Bar. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I know you're desperate. <clears <clears <throat> yeah. Go <planning>. on. <laughs> Eduardo.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for the invite. Uh, Pleasure. I do a festival, a tequila mezcal festival in London. Uh, this year will be the sixth The sixth year. Wow. And I also import food and drink from Mexico. So tequila mezcal and other agave spirits.
0: Fantastic. We'll talk a little bit more about the festival in a minute. But you are Mexican born and bred, right? Yes, Mexico City. Mexico City. And we were just saying before we started recording, that's an amazing town that's kind of changed. I'd say town. What's the population? Like 20 million or something? 25. (laughs) 25 million, yes. But the way that Mexico City has come along in the last... Well, I mean, I've been going there for about a decade. It's just incredible. It's really... It used to be romanticized by a lot of people. But now you go there and you really feel that romanticism when you go to Mexico City. There's amazing restaurants, bars. You must have noticed the changes as well
2: yourself. Yes, it's unbelievable. I mean, I go every every two or three months. I'm quite lucky. And it's just insane, the, the number of bars and restaurants. Uh, we have the 10, 50 best bar in Mexico City. We also have uh, the second best restaurant in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's booming in terms of... Astronomy and, and, and cocktails.
0: And growing up there, did you kind of always feel that you would get involved in, you know, agave or the hospitality industry, tequila, mezcal? Was that always something that was there, or did this sort of come later when you left Mexico?
2: Yeah, very late, <laughs> <laughs> super late. Yes, actually, I'm a lawyer. Oh, okay. I used to work for the criminal prosecution offices in Mexico City. Oh, wow. When I left Mexico, I came to to do an MBA. Uh, well, initially it was a an, a master in law, but it was too much. So I decided to do a business, uh, a master in business. So I moved to business. I moved to the drinks industry working for Corona beer. Mm. And then eventually I was working for, for agar spirits and importing tequila and mezcal. Ah,
0: interesting. Because I what's, what's it like growing, growing up in um, Mexico around tequila and agave spirits because they're obviously a big part of the culture at least in the exported version of mexico for people that don't live there agave spirits seem to be an intrinsic part of the culture there but actually growing up and living around it do you do you feel that being a mexican or is it is it is it something like that you might compare to say i don't know car scale in the UK where we're like yeah that's for kind of old people and you know but, you know, it's not necessarily something that's cool and exciting
2: no I mean it's actually it's always exciting to drink tequila and there's always a bottle of tequila in everyone's home mm-hmm. so you don't really feel that it's there but it's always there so it's, it's really in the culture of Mexico
0: um, how about you Dino how did you get into uh, 12 years as Don Julio ambassador that is some yes. stint
1: it is and you know what's interesting is that I don't think um People stay with one brand for so long these days. People tend to move around a lot. But I, I just, I, I fell in love with the category. I fell in love with, with the brand. And uh, yeah, here I am, 12 years later.
2: And and Nohulu the, the is uh, one of the best and biggest brands in, in Mexico. I mean... It's a brand that everybody wants to be associated, I guess.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of tequila brands out there now, but I always sort of, the way I viewed Don Julio as well, like this is a prestigious brand that Dude. sort of is very highly desirable, mm. luxury tequila brand. Is that Would you say that? I mean,
1: with? for me, when I go uh, to Mexico, I find that there's, there's a certain, and Eduardo, you'd be able to back me up on this, but I think there's, there's a, a massive amount of respect for, for Don Julio when you work for the brand people just you know have open arms and they welcome you everywhere it's, it's it's amazing it makes my job quite easy actually at times because if you say you work for Don Julio people tend to just go yeah come in yeah you know, let, let's let's do some tasting let's try it so and i've found that in mexico as well a lot.
2: yeah it is it is a brand that <coughs> has been in mexico for a long time i mean i don't you will know exactly the date that was established but mm. everybody will remember to see a bottle of don julio at, at your granddad's house or your uncle's or mm. aunt's at house
0: yeah um, so just going back to you know 12 years as Don Julio ambassador yeah I mean with Eduardo we can kind of say well you got into the tequila mezcal industry because you're Mexican yeah. and you know to some extent I guess kind of typecast for the role right yeah. you know but obviously you know your stuff whereas you know you're Londoner born and bred right Birmingham, 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 oh, of Birmingham. You're right.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and, and tequila's massive in Birmingham. in My little part of Birmingham, uh, where I've got what as in, in your, really? as in your parents' place, <laughs> yeah, just in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: so, what was it specifically about tequila that drew you in, as like as opposed to say, I don't know, rum or or, or gin?
1: I don't know. It's it's a it's a question I get asked a lot, and I, I just sometimes categories and and. And brands just find you and it's just one of those things we've we've done, Julio and Tequila. It just I've always been interested in, in tequila and the category and agave spirits. So I think it just you know, it just happened. I just I found a a really amazing um bar manager, uh, who's one of my mentors and uh yeah, he was just like, Come, let's let's go he's an American guy, let's go drink some tequila together. And uh yeah, we did. And, and was, was that was that was...
0: like an aha moment? Did you taste something and yeah. go, Oh whoa, there's like because for most people, I think in this industry, um, when you take, there's, for any spirit category or drink, there's like this moment where you can remember one specific place or time mm. or brand where you took that sip and you went, oh, yeah. no, wait a second, there's much more to this than I originally thought. There's greater depth or there's a story behind it or there's an experience that can happen around it that adds value and really kind of takes you down this rabbit hole of discovery. Yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely, hundred percent. And I, yeah, that was one of those. Moments. It was actually in Paris. If I actually if I go back and think about the genesis of it all, it's probably in Paris. I was working at a bar called the Chesterfield Cafe, just off the Champs Elysees. And um, yeah, that's where I met this uh, this guy, this 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 um, American dude who was my manager at the time. And yeah, so we went to this bar. I think it's called a Mustang Cafe. And uh, yeah, and then we were there, and, and we had like good tequila it was like this is not what i expected at all Mm. Um, that was probably the moment where i was like there's layers here to this category that i didn't really know about and i just wanted to know more well i think that's the
2: biggest problem for tequila in the uk and europe people's Mm. perception about tequila is is negative whereas if you sip a nice 100% agave tequila the experience is just Mm. incredible
0: yeah well i think these aha moments as i call them I'll coin that phrase. I, I think it's probably quite <laughs> widely used. Uh, you know, they only really come about once you begin to show whatever it is you're trying a little bit of respect, right? Because yeah. if you're not showing it respect, then you're not going to notice any kind of qualities or nuance to it. You've got to actually, like you've just described, you've got to sort of stop and go. Well, I'm not going to do a shot of this. I'm going to sip it and actually think about what it is that I'm tasting. And then that opens up whole new doorways of discovery.
1: Absolutely. I I remember um, just after I started working for Diageo 10 years ago, because I actually started working for Don Julio before I started working for Diageo, there was a campaign called Luxury Drops, and it was all based around um, educating people that you don't have to have a a shot of of tequila. So we had these little things called Luxury Drops, and they're like mini cocktails. So it's kind of like hybrid I, it was like sort of seventy-five mils to a hundred mils of a of a really you know great um, sippable cocktail. But the, I remember actually going back to this when I, mean, I had to do a little bit of feedback um, for the first sort of uh, the first three. It was like a six-month campaign, and the first three months in, I, I was like, I think we've made a bit of a mistake because we're trying to get people to not shoot tequila. However we were serving them in shot glasses. glasses. Mm. So people were just like, and that's the other issue, right? So it depends on the glass that you're serving mm. as well. So that's something that I've
0: taken on. Put know, it in a sherry glass or something like that exactly. that demands a bit of sipping. And exactly, tension, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember um, Brian Van Flandern presenting yeah. that whole thing. Yeah. It's not a cocktail. It's <laughs> yeah. not a shot. It's, yeah. it's a Don Julio luxury, luxury drop. Yeah, drop, yeah. You know? wow. that, yeah, that was yeah, that's exactly that. That's ingrained in my <laughs> mind as well. Too. But it was just about trying to get people to actually just take a little bit of pause with tequila and just slow the whole process mm. of consumption down because then suddenly things become, things become a little bit clearer and you actually get to appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about origins of... Because we talked about your origins. want to talk a little bit about the origins of tequila. I don't know how mm. you guys are ready for a history lesson here, but you're going to deliver one now. Just, just sort of top-line stuff. How did tequila come around? What's the relationship between tequila and mezcal in terms of their origin story? And they're both nodding at each other, like, right, you take that bit, you take yeah, that Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Eduardo.
1: <laughs> so you, you, take
0: the, you take the history bit, I take the modernity side of it. Yeah. <laughs> go on, a potted history of uh, agave spirits, Eduardo, go for it.
2: Right, well, I mean, uh, agave spirits have been in Mexico for, for centuries, right? I mean, we, we drink, I mean, indigenous people used to drink, and we actually drink right now a fermented juice from the agave called pulque right, then uh, that comes around 5 to 6% ABV. So we could call it like a,
0: agave wine or agave exactly. beer, yeah? Exactly, yeah. exactly.
2: And actually it was called vino de mezcal back in the day because mezcal comes from the Nahuatl mezcali, which means cooked agave, mm-hmm. right? In order to make tequila, you need to cook and ferment the agave and then distill twice, right? So Spaniards brought distillation to Mexico and then they started distilling those fermented juices. And they were drinking vino de mezcal. And there is a town in Jalisco called Tequila where it started to to grow agave plants, but not only in in the Tequila town, but in neighboring towns or municipalities of Jalisco. Mm. And then they set up the Denomination of Origin and it was established certain rules and different areas in Mexico, different states. But I think... Vino de Mezcal or an agave spirit has been in Mexico for centuries Mm. since the Spanish conquest.
0: Mm. Sometimes people draw comparisons to brandy and cognac, right? So in that analogy, brandy would be vino de mezcal, like agave spirits generically. Obviously, brandy being made from grapes and and, uh, vino de mezcal being made from uh, agave. And then the town of tequila would be the town of cognac, right? So a specific town that gained notoriety because of the quality presumably yeah. or or the fact that it was able to move it around a little bit better or export it yeah. more su- successfully gained its name just because it was it was a good producer of that particular type of spirit and in a way that town then almost kind of... Envelops the category, the, sm- the wider category itself. So cognac becomes more famous than brandy. Tequila becomes more famous than, yeah, than mezcal. Does that make, is that is that a good analogy, or do you think it's flawed?
2: No, no it is. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 It
0: is no, it, it is, and quite interesting.
1: When you talk about brandy as well because that actually really um, the Spanish uh, Spanish spirits actually helped the, the popularity indirectly of, of, of tequila and mezcal because the Spanish kings actually. Um, banned the uh, importing of of, of uh, Spanish spirits into Mexico, and then obviously the boom of, uh, of you know the mezcal started to to, to really expand. So. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting that that whole kind of colonial story because the same thing happened in rum as well, right? Mm. I mean, um, you're living in the New World, if you want to call it that, um, away from everything you've ever known, and you want some kind of some sort of consolation for this hardship and so you know alcohol of course would have helped with that historically mm. um, but uh, you can't just be importing it across the atlantic Ocean all the time especially if the spanish king has prevented that from happening yeah so then you work with what you got right exactly, yeah. and you look at whatever plants are indigenous and you start converting those into spirits yeah instead
2: and, and agave is, is across mexico so you find agave plants all the way from from the north in Chihuahua, Sonora, Durango, down to to Oaxaca, we have two mountain rains and the agave grows in the mountains.
1: And just to dis- dispel one thing, I think I'm right in saying here that um, a lot of people st- had this idea that pulque was um, was was distilled and, and and that was what how uh, mezcal um, came about. But it wasn't actually. There was a different type of agave yeah. that was used, so it wasn't actually pulque that was distilled to make. Uh, mezcals and tequilas in the early days. It's a different type of agave source that was used. So that didn't happen.
0: Because there's loads of different types of agave, right? Mm. Are we talking like hundreds, thousands?
2: 200 different types of agave yeah. in, uh, in the world, and 150 are ethnic from Mexico.
0: Right, and the ones that aren't in Mexico, are they ones that have been taken out of because it's indigenous to mexico yeah. correct yeah. so these other ones have come out and been and mutated or been bred to create new varieties or, or
2: not just different families just okay. different varieties of agaves that grows in different regions
1: yeah and there's a there's there's certainly a lot in 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 california as well isn't there? there's a lot of agaves in, uh, in in california i read something recently that there's a, a bit of a i wouldn't say a bit of a wave but there's certainly a movement of um californians um Making agave spirits as well, and there's a bit of a movement behind that of people, you know, making their own agave spirits. Obviously, can't call it tequila because of obvious reasons of, yeah. you know,
2: the um, protection of bit the of deal. protection. Yeah. But you find agaves in south of Italy and, mm. and Greece and northern Africa?
0: Let's go through the kind of lifespan of agave because they mm. they grow for quite a long time, right? I want to talk a little bit about where they grow, the types of soil that they grow in, and then I want to talk through this kind of lifespan, reaching maturity, and then finally down to harvest. So are there specific regions in which agave grow better, or particular soil types?
2: Yeah, well, the agave grows, as I say, uh, on, the, on the Pacific coast, well, all the way from, from Chihuahua to Oaxaca on the east-west side, and then all the way from Tamaulipas to, to Chiapas on the west side. So they, for tequila, they grow in five states. Mainly Jalisco being one of the best uh, states to grow tequila, or blue, or blue tequila, however. And in Jalisco you find the lowlands and the highlands. Mm. The agave grows in both the high altitude and in the lowlands. And the tequila that you will get out of, depending on where the agave comes from, is uh, very distinctive. You mm. would say, you know, I mean, yeah. if you drink tequila, you will really notice when it's a lowlands or highlands tequila. Yeah,
1: and and the the, the difference can be yeah. You know, I mean, this is a bit of a generalisation, but the difference can be that the Highland tequilas tend to have a little bit more sort of sweetness to them and a little bit more citrus um, citrus notes that you'll find start to uh, to come out. For certainly, I find notes, and then you'll find a little bit more of a vegetal, uh, mineral-rich sort of I would not say earthy, but uh, yeah, I wasn't going to say earthy <laughs> flavours for those in the, in in the lowlands and. And there's a there's a very I I, I used to really enjoy doing um, lowland versus highland tequila tastings because I think it's a, it's a really good way to get people to understand that you know terroir is really important in in tequila is is as important in, in tequila as it is in many other um, spirits and
0: possibly more than any other spirit i I would say i mean i don't really believe in terroir in most spirits i do in agave spirits Mm. but i think that terroir is probably something that's overstated oversold Mm. in a lot of spirits yeah i think a lot of you know whiskey makers for example like to market specific strains of barley or terroir and everything sorry but i just don't think it's there not by mm-hmm. the time it's been distilled and matured but in a spirit like tequila because with with uh you know 100% blue agave tequila it's you're not getting all that column distilled spirit in there you're getting quite a rich expression of the base material yeah. and especially in blanco expressions mm-hmm. where it's not been aged you've not got any wood interference there either and so I really agree with you. I think you can. I think you can really detect the plant itself there in the final product, which you know you're just not going to get that in in most most other spirits. I don't think.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it's it's such a, you know, again because I, I'm obviously going to be quite biased on this, but I do think tequila's the most versatile category. Uh, having worked across all all categories, and you know, I, and beer and wines as well. There is a tequila. I really do believe there's a tequila for everyone, you know, depending on your... If you like spirits, there's going to be a tequila there for you, you know, whether it's a Blanco, whether it's a Reposado or Añejo, whether it's an Extra Añejo. You think about what you could... And actually, I say this specifically with the Don Julio portfolio, you know, where do you want to go? Do you want to make something that's kind of light and sort of, you know, kind of really... Um, you know, get those raw agave flavours over, then go for a Blanco. Do you want something a little bit more in keeping with a bourbon? Then you go for a Reposado. Do you want something a bit more complexity, like a Scotch? Then go for an Añejo. Do you want something a little bit smoother, like a Cognac? Go for 1942. Do you want something really super expensive, just because you've got expensive taste? Go for Don Julio Real. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and you think about what you can do with those. It's it's hard to see that level of uh, variety within... A portfolio and and uh, and another category. I think it's amazing.
2: And the, and the production will change depending on yeah. on the quality of the tequila, on the price. You know, I mean, if you cook the agaves on on autoclaves, you know, on on massive pressure cookers, yeah, uh, it will be different than if you cook them in brick ovens, like yeah. most of the premium tequila does.
0: I want to talk about that in a minute as well. So, um, I th- I think we should probably taste some Don Julio, and while we're doing that. Um, do you want to pour us out some Don Julio Blanco, do you know what yep. you brought along? Yep. Um, while we're doing that, let's continue this sort of story of the plant itself. So you mentioned how we have highland and lowland agave, which produce different characteristics. Um, the highland being sort of lighter, more citrusy; the lowland being richer, earthier. To sort of paraphrase what you said, um, is that to do with the altitude or to do with the soil?
2: I would say both.
1: Yeah, I was going to say both.
2: Yeah, because in the highlands you find these beautiful red soil mm. uh, high in minerals whereas in the lowlands is dark soil. That's why maybe the vegetal flavors and notes come from. And also, we have to remember that for tequila, for the tequilana blue weather we need to, to wait five to seven years for the plant to, to be ready. So, throughout those five or seven years the plant goes through different periods of stress and different periods of of cold nights and mm-hmm. very hot summers, right? So it does it does really uh, impact both the soil and, and the altitude.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, when it comes to planting them, they tend, because I've, I've been in the uh, agave fields before, they, they, they have quite a lot of space in between the plants, right? These things are not kind of shoved in together because presumably they, they need quite a lot of room. When they get bigger, they have these these long, is it pencas? Penka, 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 the yeah. penca- yeah. leaves, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sticking out. So they're, they're planted, what sort of size are they when they're actually put into the ground? And then what size can we expect them to grow to in that kind of six to eight year period?
2: Well, I think when they planted, it's around 30 centimeters. Mm. I mean, it's a properly baby, yeah. it, and then they will grow up to 1.2, 1.5 meters high, yeah. I would say.
0: Okay,
1: and and size-wise as well can um, can vary, and we spoke about this um, this part of the one of the unique uh, characteristics of Don Julio uh, and from a production point of view as well. Specifically, that uh, Don Julio, when he planted his agaves, he planted them further apart than anybody else because he realised by doing that in highland areas that there's a very good chance that it would get obviously they'll get more sunlight, and that would impact the the, the flavour uh, profile at the end, and the, the agaves would grow bigger. Um, and uh, and he, he, he was right. And that actually became um, uh, an industry standard practice after Don Julio um, used his great knowledge and innovation. Okay, cool. So when did that happen, uh, that sort of first initiative to plant them further apart? That was... I mean, when he he was experimenting quite a lot from 1950 all the way up to, but well, say 30 years is a long time to experiment. But yeah, he was.
0: Really they do take a long time to grow, though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you so do it once and yeah. you make your tequila and you go, mm, not quite right. Not quite oh, right. Come back again yeah, in eight yeah, years. Exactly. <laughs> and at that point, he
1: was actually growing his agave for up to 12 years. So yeah, I mean, he probably had three experiments, and the third one was it was a charm. So. That's um, like a
0: life dedicated to right. a working life dedicated.
1: Absolutely, to Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so yeah, in that point, I mean, his first brand was was tres uh, Meguez and that was um, launched in fifty one, uh, well, ready in fifty one, and then launched a little bit after that. But then, yeah, you're talking about Don Julio as we know it now. in the, In the eighties, really, is where where everything in the early eighties is where he sort of perfected his craft. Um, so yeah, long time experimenting, but. Around that time, in the mid 80s, um, it would have been yeah, sort of people realising that Don Julio was doing something very, very unique, and then um, adopting his methods as well. That's one of the things that I said when I've been to Mexico and I've I've visited other distilleries, and I say that there's a lot of respect for Don Julio, and people tend to have open arms when you go to see them. That they also do talk about the you know the production and and what he was like as an individual, and I quite often say that he was a humble man, but he was a ge- he was a genius and he was an innovator.
0: Okay, let's taste the uh, fruits of his labor. then. Yeah. So um, we've got Don Julio Blanco. So is this is the agave highland or lowland that's in this then? This is made in Atotonilco, um,
1: which is in Jalisco. So this is a highland. It's a perfect expression of a highland um, of, of a highland tequila. Um, and again, as like, so you bring this to your to your nose, you'll you'll get. Uh, I mean, this is uh, such a. A wonderful this kind of raw agave this is what i guess master distiller but if you go to a distillery you'll you know the agaves are chopped in into uh equal sizes and um you get that raw agave sort of aroma in the distillery and, and this is it you really notice that on the on the nose but you also get citrus you get different types of citrus here and sometimes for me, I can quite honestly say, and in the official tasting notes it will say, sort of lime and, and lemon, I get, I do get grapefruit. I get grapefruit mm-hmm. first, and I, and and then I will get the other citrus notes thereafter. And then obviously, once we taste it as well, you'll find those notes that we just uh, just mentioned there. But you also get a slight peppery finish, and again, that's mm-hmm. quite, that's quite something that you you should find in a okay. in a high quality um, Highland uh, Blanco tequila.
0: I certainly. Um Certainly, citrusy, I've, and I know what you mean by grapefruit. It's limey as well. It reminds, and also I get a sort of certain brininess to it as well, mm. like a kind of yeah. you know pickle brine kind of thing going on. Yeah,
1: and that's that, that's a really good point because I think you know with with uh, Don Julio Blancos, is not some people rest their uh, Blancos for a, a short period of time. This is you know pretty much off the still.
0: Yeah, well, there's kind of, uh, I guess, sort of two different aims there, isn't there? With vodka, it's to remove as much flavour as possible. Yeah. Um, and then, in some cases, talk about how you've managed to put flavour back in. <laughs> and then, well, with agave spirits, it's more a case of, like, right, how what can we do? What strategies can we adopt to retain as much of the flavour of that plant as possible? It's very much like um, when you're making eau de vs, right? I mean, you could look at blanco tequila as an agave eau de V, right because eau de vie makers whether it's plums or apricots or pears they're kind of the masters of capturing the flavor of that plant in its purest freshest form um and putting it into a spirit so that it is preserved forevermore for you to enjoy even when those things are not in season and i feel like agave spirits are it, it's the same kind of process it's How do we get the best out of that product? Put it in a bottle so that we can taste the flavor of this plant the entire year round.
1: Blanco tequilas are just amazing. Like you know, when you talk about getting that everything that you can from from the you know all the flavors that you can get from the agave, it's all here. This is it's you know in its purest purest form. You get that lovely. crispness that you can only find in a blanco tequila and that lovely citrus and there's a slightly peppery finish but there's no burn, this is just smooth and it coats your mouth and it also has great length because I mean, you know, five, ten seconds later I can still taste that, you know, slightly bit of receptacles are going but also there's that if you rub your tongue on the roof of your mouth there's a bit of sweetness still there as well, it's, it's wonderful mm.
2: And I think that um, in the last few years producers are working a lot on Perfection in the, the Blanco tequila, right? Because back in the day, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, everybody used to drink Reposados, Saranejos, because you can mix it with grapefruit soda and make a paloma or just drink and eat. Is that the same in um,
0: USA as well? Because, I mean, that, USA and Mexico are the, by far the two biggest markets, right? No,
2: I think outside Mexico, Blanco is the the, the yeah. favourite, uh, mm. people's favourite. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. We, we had um, it's quite interesting... Um, maybe, I think it was probably 18 months ago or so, we had some data come through about uh, Mexico, specifically about uh, Don Julio, because the Reposado had always been the number one seller throughout the portfolio until 18 months ago, and it's now um, Don Julio Setenta. It was a real shock because, as you say, it's like, it is a reposado, is what's drunk mainly in uh, in Mexico. Mexico so.
0: Yeah. so let's quickly talk through the differences between blanco and reposado from a legal standpoint, and also from what you might, what you might expect to taste in the bottle. Um So we just tasted a blanco tequila. What's the sort of legals around how that must be made?
2: Uh, to be blanco, is not aged or up to two months on American. Uh, bourbon barrels mm-hmm. or ex-american bourbon barrels reposado is anything from two months to 12 months and añejo is 12 months to 24 months a
0: few questions around that so i can age a blanco for up to two months do i need does it need to be clear when i bottle it or can it have color Yep,
1: yeah, you can have color in it and there are it's a great question because you know with, with the blancos there's there are certain brands that uh, that do add a little bit of color to their blancos because I think that's I mean, this is purely obviously for a consumer point of view, right? So, you know, you look at something and it's got a lit and it has a slight uh, sort of, let's say, straw-like colour to it or hay-like colour to it. And people tend to think that that would mean that it's better quality. Mm. Um, You know, and there's brands, I'm not going to mention any brands, but there's certain brands that, you know, that that do do that and and have done very well in in marketing that way.
0: Because another thing, Reposado, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the... It's 2 to 12 months maturation, but the yeah. barrel size can be enormous, right? You, we could be talking about huge grape vats as opposed to what you'd probably imagine as a barrel, which is like something the size of a coffee table. I think it's like up to 20,000 litres in size.
2: I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it's 5,000 litres. I think it's okay. five. yeah.
0: But that's still a big barrel, right? It's I mean, you think bowl, a bourbon yeah. barrel is like 200, yeah, 200. litres. So, yes. so what I, I mean, this, is, this would be completely pointless for any producer to do this, but you could, in theory, I suppose, have a Blanco tequila aged in a small barrel for mm. two months, or two months minus one day, and then a Reposado from the same producer aged for three months in mm. an enormous, great, inactive barrel and the Blanca would have more maturation characteristic to it than yeah. the Reposado yeah, yeah. so there's quite a crossover yeah. it, it potentially a crossover It's yeah. not really any point in a, a producer exercising their right to sort of use that crossover because really they're just going to be confusing a consumer right yeah. but it's I always find it interesting in spiritual cata- um, classification when you have these sort of gray areas and you're like mm is it one is it the other oh. yeah
1: the majority of um people who do produce uh blancos and they do have that sort of slight color to them they will go down that route of just i'd say whacking it in a stainless steel container but they will just whack mm. it in a stainless steel container because it's cheaper and they don't have to have to do that. but yeah but you know for sure you can you know it's, it would make a would make a difference to the to the end uh, product as well
0: mm. And then Añejo is it 1 to 3 years is yeah. that correct yeah. yeah and then there's there's extra añejo right which yeah. would be 3 years plus when you're really starting to get more into that like brandy whiskey territory and you're losing a lot of that distillery character yeah. I always wonder how how are those like extra añejo products received in Mexico where You know you're making we've already sort of waxed lyrically about how you're capturing the essence of this plant and then only to go and put it in a barrel and sort of undo all that hard work in the growing and and um production stages by smothering it in wood characteristics is how how are they received in mexico and and also that's questions for you eduardo and then adina i'd like you to sort of talk about what the best use cases for those products Mm -hmm. are
2: they are super popular. I mean, uh, whiskey and rum is very popular in Mexico. People like the the dark spirits in a way. So you will find loads of añejos and extra añejos, tequilas, very popular in Mexico. Is it to the, getting to the point
0: then where you think in Mexico, Blanco is and I'm talking about just perceptually, not in terms of the actual quality, because we've just tasted a fantastic Blanco tequila. Is it getting to the point in Mexico where some people are like, they start from Reposado and work their way up? 100%. See, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I see Blanco, and I don't think I'm alone here. I I reckon you guys are probably the same. I see it as a sort of more like the truest expression of agave, and therefore not necessarily the best, because I do think each classification has its own purpose it has its own time of day its own perhaps cocktail application or food pairing whatever it might be but if i wanted to teach someone about tequila i feel like the the crux of that argument will happen when they taste a blanco tequila and and at no other time because that's the, that's when you're getting the real expression of agave
1: yeah and and on that actually i think that that's this is probably the point where you you judge a good producer or not right by mm. the blanco that they produce i mean I, it would be very unusual to have someone have a magnificent reposado but um you know but the the blanco be terrible mm. you, you it's got to be good with a blanco first because it all starts with a blanco.
0: yeah it's a starting point yeah the thing is I, I what happens is products become a status symbol right and the brand you're drinking and yeah, the colour of the liquid or whether it says Oñeco or Reposado or Blanco on the bottle be- takes precedent over the liquid. Like, and for a lot of people, the, the actual flavour of the liquid, even though they've got money to spend and could buy fantastic tequila... The flavor of the liquid is way down the bottom of the list of important things for going to this party that you're hosting. So you've got to make sure you're ticking all those boxes to ensure that you, the bottle symbolizes your status as someone who can afford a bottle of Añeco tequila, right? And, I guess and, usually, it's,
2: and usually Reposado bottles and Añeco tequila bottles are much prettier. Oh, they are, aren't they? Añeco. Some of them are very
0: fancy, yeah? Yeah. And you've got one here. I have <laughs>
2: the
0: prettiest out of all of them. I would, I would
1: quite easily say. But it's imp- actually it's just picking up on what you're saying about, um, you know, status and how important that is. It's actually reflected in um, in tequila sales as well. If you think about the category as a whole, you know, uh, across Europe in the last five years, the luxury tequila, anything over, it's classified in different by different price points in different countries. But let's say on average twenty five. £25 pounds and up, you know, that category is growing at around 20%, you know, and has been uh, across Europe. And then in GB, it's around 18%, 19%, and then up to 22% in the last five years, which is in, it like for a category to be growing, you know, on average, approximately 20%. That says it all. It's and that's a,
0: tequila or agave spirits? It's, it's luxury tequila.
1: Luxury, cause, luxury cause tequila? Because Mezcal
0: is really growing fast as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: that that has a similar sort of growth pattern as yeah. well. But what's interesting is that the rest of the category is actually in decline.
0: Ah, uh, okay. So it's growing at the top end. Yeah. It's
1: growing right at the top end, which is really cool. So that's, you know, it's a great thing um, for me to keep working for this brand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. But, that it's working but going back to the whole status symbol thing, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because in Mexico, we're hearing it from the horse's mouth, Eduardo. It's, you know, it, sh- it shows your status to be coming to the party with a bottle of añejo tequila and to, sh- to sort of be displaying your wealth and your discernment for these more expensive products. But the exported version of Mexican culture that we see in cities in America, all over Europe, in London with Dino's Bar Hasha, is more like a kind of, how would I put it, like a rustic sort of honest version of Mexico where it's actually the Blanco spirits that are highly lauded that are, you know, talked about that it feels like you're in a diner or a canteen. It feels more like a kind of some of the roadside places that I've visited in Mexico or indeed places like La Capilla in tequila town where everything's a little bit kind of bare bones and, you know, thrown together with spit and sawdust and a little bit of love thrown on top of that, you know, and I that sort of sounds like that's what, people who've got the money to spend on good tequila in Mexico are trying to distance themselves from,
2: right? Indeed. Sadly, but that's, <laughs> that's real, yes.
0: Um, right, Dino, do you want to pour yes. us out some of the... Are you going to do 1942 next? 1942, no, yeah? yeah. And while you're doing that, because um, well, we'll talk a little bit about it while we're tasting it, Eduardo, let's pick up again on the production side of things. We talked a little bit about planting agaves and we talked about Don Julio's influence on that. So let's talk about harvesting time. And what goes on there? Because I've had a go at this and it. Well, you talk through it. What happens? It's weird.
2: (laughs) It is. (laughs) As we said before, you need to wait five to seven years for the blue agave to be full mature, right? In Mezcal, anything from seven to 25 or 30 years, depending on the type of agave. So there are some agaves for Mezcal that the, the maturation or the aging is actually on the plant. You need to wait 25 or 30 years and the spirit that you get from that plant is just unbelievable but if we talk about harvesting yeah you have to wait for the plant once the plant is ready you will see the quixote coming out that flower in right in the in the center of the of the plant the jimadores so the people that harvest the agave they will know about it and then they will start uh, harvesting they will chop off all the leaves and then just keep the heart of the agave which we call piña because it looks like a massive pineapple uh, and then you will take that to the distillery. You will cook the the pinas uh, to convert the starch into sugars. So you will cook that in uh, some of the good tequilas. They use break ovens, 24 to 48 hours cooking. And then you will ferment those those agaves. You mash them up with water, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, before yeah, once once you cook them, you will then mill. You pass into the milling process with water. You will extract all the juices from from the plant, and then you will ferment those those agaves and distill mm-hmm. on copper steel pots or stainless steel pots, depending on depending on the producer.
0: And you mentioned the cooking bits. There's a few different ways of doing that, right? Um, you you say the brick oven is the best, you would say, or is, is it just the, different?
2: Is it traditional way or the, the the old way of cooking on? big brick ovens with a capacity of two tons. But many other producers, they have autoclaves, which you can put 20 tons of agave right. and cook faster, mm-hmm. four or five hours. It's like a massive pressure cooker, basically.
0: Right, so high pressure. So, and it's just basically just more industrial process, more kind of efficient, yeah? Indeed. Right, okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think when when the boom of tequila happened in, in the 90s, uh, people start adapting to that boom right I mean before that people were using brick ovens but because you have to wait for the rabbit to be ready five years so the rotation is massive and then you have to cook they just try to maximise the opportunity at the time you know? mm. and then but many people involve uh, autoclaves into the cooking which many people do so uh, I think the brick oven cooking is the best in my opinion
0: so you do think it has an Im- impact on flavour the end? yeah
2: there's such a romanticism for
1: me around tequila production I, I love the the, the I love the production, I love the way that it's you know, when it's done in a very traditional way. It's it's amazing to watch. You know, you see the guys, you know, the humidors out there with the with the, the with the covers and the way the technique that they use when they're actually trying to shave, you know, the the, the penkers off so that you have the, the the pina um left there and I've I've tried um, I've tried to do that myself, and I, I was probably the only person in the world that managed to make a square pinna. It was ridiculous. I was chopping <laughs> it. You know, it's such a skill. Hard, Those guys, are, yeah, and you know, you got to be
0: careful not to chop your foot off as well, haven't you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I once tried to bring a koa home. Did you, uh, like, yeah, uh, did you get? Uh, we got to the airport and they were like, no, yeah, not bringing, <laughs> yeah. you're not checking that thing in. Yeah. <laughs> it was all wrapped up, but they were like, <laughs> so, no. that's a lethal weapon. We're not putting <laughs> yeah. that on the plane. Super
1: sharp. Yeah. Super it looked sharp. amazing though. Mm. It would have been good. Well,
0: this is it. I wanted it above the fireplace. Well, perfect. It yeah. would have been perfect though. We got. We're going to talk about mezcal in a minute, but first, you've pulled us a fantastic tequila here, Dino. So let's talk a little bit about Don Julio 1942.
1: Yeah, Don Julio 1942. Um, I mean, where do we start? The bottle itself uh, is such a one. Run- I mean, it's a wonderful, amazing, elegant bottle. If you look at it, and you look at the the size the, the size of it, it's very different to the rest of the uh, the portfolio. But it's got this.
0: Yeah, because the don't, normal Don Hulu bottles are, are sort of famed for being quite squat yeah. uh, and round, aren't they? Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, this is very tall. It's
1: very tall. Uh, it's very elegant. Um, it's obviously sort of lightly, kind of, what colour would you call that? Kind of light brown sort of? Yeah. Kind of light brown sort of colour. Um, but it's shaped in in a the shape of a penker, ah. so you can see that
0: that there, so tapering in this, in at the top. Yeah. yeah oh, you can see actually top. that front bit there is just like a penker. It's a flat bit, isn't there on the yeah, front? Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, and this was for two reasons. One of it was to to, to one of the reasons was. And that um, when it was created, it was supposed to represent a lot of the flavour, being quite long and quite sort of you know luxurious and elegant and and long lasting, and, and they wanted a bottle to reflect that. Uh, but they also wanted something to reflect the production as well. Uh, so aged for two and a half years, we use a very small um, pot still to make this. So it has a five hundred litre capacity, um, and and again. Uh, what makes that quite unique is the fact that it's, it's a really small it's small batch and it was just, uh, introduced into the market in two, uh, 2002 to celebrate 60 years of Don Julio um, first creating tequila in 1942. Uh, and interestingly, was meant to be um, limited edition. And uh, so our master distiller Enrique de Colsa told me, so that when he released it, he had a lot of... A backlash negative backlash and everyone was like what are you doing why have you done this this isn't tequila this you know because at the time when it was launched it was very very expensive it was like two to three times more expensive than anything else on the market it was in a uh you know it was in a different shape bottle um it didn't really necessarily smell so much as like a, a you know the raw garvey notes that you get on uh in, in a blanco um but it sold out it's it's um Uh, limited edition quantity in a very short space of time I think it was about four to six months it had sold out and then they were like okay this is going to work and there it's been a a amazing tequila in the market since 2002 and I would consider it to be a real leader in that sort of ultra you know sort of luxury tequila
2: I mean the liquid is amazing and and the bottle just complements nicely the liquid right
0: bottle stands out right doesn't it you're not
1: going to miss that one So on the the nose, there's like real nice sort of chocolatey notes that start to jump out of there. Obviously, you've got the influence of the wood coming through as well because it's been aged for two and a half years, but there's also some deep uh, sort of dark stone fruits as well Mm. in there as well. It's a lot of complexity.
0: Well, I get quite a lot of um, jumping out to the taste. I've never picked this up on 40, 1942 before, but I got quite a lot of peach and apricot Mm. on the finish of the flavour there. Sort of tropical fruit, but also stone fruit. like. In a really lovely way, because I've always associated this tequila with being more like coffee and chocolate, yeah. like darker kind of couches, but there's real fruitiness there as well. Too. There is,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you. You could make a really nice toriador with this as well.
0: How would you make a toriador?
1: Use some apricot, um, apricot liqueur, or actually, so you can do it a couple of ways. But you could, yeah, apricot liqueur basically, and and um, uh, and also some fresh lime as well. It's essentially the precursor to uh, was the precursor to the margarita. The toriador was around first, and then it was kind of changed a little bit up into um, then the margarita came came around.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tasty. It's really good. good um right let's move on to mezcal so we've we've talked a little bit about the blue agave about growing agave how the harvested process let's start picking up on how mezcal differentiates here so where it's made what varieties of agave are permissible and how we get to the end product
2: right well um, mezcal as, as tequila has a denomination of origin so it has to follow certain rules Call NOM Seventy. Uh, they they need to follow. There are the consul of regulatory consul of mezcal goes around the different producers and make sure that they sell what they say. There's an hologram on the bottles that you can check and you can actually track back the, the producer. But basically, the difference. One of the biggest differences is that you can use any type of agave. So as I say, there are more than hundred different types of agave in Mexico. Currently. Mescal producers use around 50 different types, so each mezcal will be completely different. In tequila, there are differences, but more or less the profile of flavors are, are similar in a way.
0: Mm. Does a single producer tend to use one variety, or might they use a mixture of varieties?
2: Mixture of varieties. Okay, yeah, so I mean, it really they,
0: becomes quite complicated trying to work are, out.
2: They are now blending different types of agave, called ensamble, so... They can have two or three or four different types of agave cooked together and distilled together, produced mm-hmm. together. So,
0: are there particular types that are favoured, that are known, are like highly prized, or known to give certain types of flavour, or are we still too kind of early on to be establishing those facts? And-
2: well, the most popular is Espadin, which is a uh, cousin of the blue agave. Mm-hmm. is Is one of the agaves that can be domesticated, that can be farmed. So you find Espadin agave fields across Oaxaca. Uh, similar as you find blue agave fields in, in Jalisco but there are the wild agaves like Tobalao, Tepestate, or, or Karwinski, which are obviously much more more popular because you have to wait 10, 15, 20, 25 years for the plant to be ready and you will have a completely different spirit. Mm.
0: That's a lot of work or a lot of patience to get to a finished product. Eh?
2: Not just that you need to go up to the mountains, yeah. harvest and bring them down in, in burros or donkeys because there is no roads. I mean, Oaxaca, I think Oaxaca <laughs> is, is the capital of Mezcal just because people in Oaxaca were making Mezcal for centuries. And people in Oaxaca, they still live uh, like 100 years ago. They, they live in communities and they were producing, or they are producing Mezcal just for them, for mm. their celebrations, for birthdays, for funerals, for 15 years, for weddings. So Mezcal is a product has to hopefully always remain uh, small. I think this
0: is one of the things that is, is drawing new people to Mescal though, because it feels like it's from a, a, like a distant time. It feels more primitive, feels more... I mean, in this kind of current culture where everyone's looking for provenance and authenticity to products, that kind of assurance that it's come from a family-operated farm that's been going for 200 years and there's your mom and dad two kids and a donkey and you know the agave grows nearby or up a mountain as you mentioned just to make it harder having already waited 30 years is there someone throwing stones at you on the way back down as well right that that story okay that i mean for for, for a certain type of consumer adds so much value and you pay for that right and the fact that we can actually taste that kind of stuff, given that it's come from these small communities that are, like you say, still living like a hundred years ago, um, the fact that we're able to export that out and taste it all over the world is really, where well, it's quite a privilege to be able to taste yeah, it, isn't I know, it.
2: I know producers that they don't speak Spanish, or even they do, they will they will talk to to each other in, in Zapotec, yeah, the indigenous uh, dialect or language in in the area.
1: Amazing, and there is something romantic about uh, about mezcal and its and its production. I think, and we talk about people wanting stuff that's a little bit more, you know, that provenance, and 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 people want brands with history and with stories behind them, and 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 something that they can emotionally connect to. And I think when you go and you see you know mescal production in its rawest form it is a really great thing to see and to and to witness but also i think there's an element in this which is which is quite important often gets overlooked there's sustainability as well of, of and the practice and and how how that is actually you know taken from the land giving back to the land and how many mezcal producers support small communities around them as well
0: yeah well this is the thing i mean they've been doing it for hundreds of years and things haven't really changed in these communities i guess and so by their nature they have to be sustainable otherwise they wouldn't Mm. still be there right so it's sort of born out of necessity not through some kind of like corporate innovation exactly (laughs) Exactly,
1: yeah Yeah. that's what makes it so beautiful
0: It's, it's great um all right so Let's talk about the cooking bit, because there's a lot of, like, chatter around how the agaves are cooked in mezcal. You get this smoky flavor coming through. Go on, Eduardo, tell us a little bit about that, because the smokiness, I think, is the thing that really stands out in a lot of mezcal.
2: Yes, but that is particularly mezcals from Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. Mezcals from Oaxaca are usually more smoky than other mezcals. And yeah, as you said, the, the cooking the cooking is just completely different. In Oaxaca, they will well across the nine states that produce mezcal by by law, they they dig a hole in the ground, so they cook on the ground with wood. They will throw wood, fire up, add some volcanic stone. Once the volcanic stone is red fired, then they start adding the the agaves. Mm-hmm. They will, as in tequila, cut in halves or in quarters, and they will make uh, very nicely pyramid in a way you know and then they will cover it with banana leaves or soil Mm -hmm. and they will leave those agave roasting for one week 10 days 15 days wow that's where i suppose when you
0: waited 30 years in some cases you're like i'm gonna wait a couple of weeks for the thing to cook
2: yeah and and what it it is a
1: really i i think there's a real skill to this in in uh, mezcal production because the best producers will probably wait until you know it's 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 how long do you wait before you put the fire out and do, before you sort of starve the uh you know that pit if you like of, of oxygen so and that can be done by throwing you know sort of um earth and uh and leaves uh, but then also covered in, in in a sack as well a big sack that goes over um all of the agaves and obviously the longer you keep the fire burning the more smoke that you're going to get so it will you know the some producers like to just kind of keep that sort of toasty sort of smell. But the most important thing, I guess, is to, you know, you don't sort of just throw the uh, the agaves on top of the, uh, the, the the rocks because then you're just going to burn them. So there has to exactly. be a little layer as well there just to, to protect.
2: They usually use the fibres from the previous distillation. Yeah. Uh, okay, like an agave. insulation almost. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay, so, and then the time you take to cook because you're going to be converting the starch into sugar but if you go too far it's going to get smokier but also presumably you're going to start almost like caramelising yeah. sugar which means you're losing fermentable sugar which means you're losing exactly. product, right? Yeah.
2: Coming back to the altitude, we were talking about altitude before, depending on, on where the producer is, you know, at 2,000 meters or 1,500 or, or by sea level, the cooking will take longer or, or less time. Also, because high high in the mountains, even though it's summer, it will be cold in, in, at night. Yeah. Also the wood that they use, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they use local, local wood, they will use oak or pine or cypress or...
0: So There's so many different variables, even even before you've got to the distillery part, right?
2: I think the cooking is the most important for, for Mascale. Yeah. And the wood that they use and the, the, the time. Yeah,
0: sure, because, I mean, all these different varieties of agave, but I guess a lot of whatever makes those varieties unique can easily be kind of covered up by the cooking process if you've got a lot of smoke going in there then it's like a peated whiskey, right? I mean, you're not going to detect the barley variety by the time you've chucked a load of peat there and, and yeah. given it all that smoky quality. So, and of course, I mean, smoke's just so pervasive, isn't it? It carries through, like, you know, we see it with peat repeated whiskey. You can light this fire to kind of uh, smoke this barley, And then you grind that barley down and you ferment it and you distill it twice and then you put it in a barrel for 30 years and you can still taste the smoke 30 years later, right? Um, And it's the same with mezcal, you know. I mean, and it's one of the things that um, can put people off mezcal, I think, is when you get some of the ones that are crazy smoky and you're like, whoa, that is, you know, it's intense. It's a, you know, it's really... um, a, yeah. an onslaught, of the senses, you know. But yeah. not,
2: not all mezcals are no. smoky. No, no. So people, are some people not people. smoky at all? Yes. Okay. In San Luis Potosí, which is an estate next to Jalisco, mm-hmm. they use brick ovens. Oh, okay. So those mezcals from San Luis Potosí are usually non smoky at all. So you get all the flavors from the agave, and they use the salmiana agave, which yeah. is the one that we use to make pulque, yeah. which is very green, very vegetal. Yeah.
0: Mm. oh so there are some spirits made from the pulque agave right oh, this is, I tell you, so the thing we can really take away from mezcal is it's not possible to kind of describe what mezcal is because there's so much diversity within it that you just don't know what you're going to get unless you know how it's been made and you know the producer Exactly. Speaking of which, we have a mezcal here. We do. Dino, our resident bartender, will now <laughs> serve up yet another drink.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, again, talking about um, the different types of uh, agave that you use, this is uh, Casamigos mezcal, and it's uh, made 100% Espadin. Um This has been cooked, actually, um, between four to six days and uh and then um ferments for a couple of weeks and the, the fermentation thing i think is really important here and and th- sorry this is also bit like four five, uh four generations uh, of, of mezcal producers as well here as well so i think that's really um, key to point out there's a bit of lineage here as well but um the fermentation, I think, is quite key as well. If you know that sort of fermentation in in in, in wood versus fermentation in um, you know in copper, etc. This is an expression of, of mezcal that I would say is a real introduction into mezcal, into you know the different flavors that exist in making it. There's this, there's and you'll know a lot more about this, and I will Tris, But there's um. The way that we talk about smoke is very different, isn't it? And there are different types of smoke that you can have. This, for me, is a sweet smoke. Mm. It's not a, you know, kind of a heavy sort of, you know, kind of woody dominated smoke. It's very... It, it's sweet with a gentle spice, if you know what I mean. I know that might sound a little bit pretentious, but when you taste it... Oh,
0: well, you're right. I mean, smoke is... It should never really be used on its own as a descriptor here because it can come across in so many different ways. I mean, it can be... Um, like a barbecue smoke, it can be, which which can sometimes be sweet in itself. You think about like barbecue ribs or like a glaze on a, on on some meat or whatever that's been that's been smoked. It smoke can sometimes have more of a farmy smoke to it um and then it can have more of a medicinal kind of quality to it you get that with like isla whiskeys and things like that um and then there's all sorts of stuff in between that too you think like bonfire smoke versus campfire yeah. smoke there's a difference there you know it's,
1: yeah, it's such a big difference and, and and i think that that again goes back to what we're saying with, with mescals uh, you know the difference in the different types of smoke versus the different types of agave versus the different geographical regions versus the, di- the different, you know, e- the, the, ter- everything, you know, the production time, the, 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 you know, the distillation time. I mean, you know, most distillations, you know, two distillations or whatever tend to take around the same sort of time, but it's that fermentation that is, is very different all the way through as well. Mm. Um, and the size of the tanks that are used, you know, and it's very rudimental as well sometimes in, in mezcal production. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's a really it's a fascinating category. What's interesting is because the smoke can be quite polarizing. I always find it interesting when I you know have a couple of different mescales in a bar, but a lot of people automatically do associate mezcal with smokiness, So they come to me and I say, "What's your smokiest one that you've got?" And I'm like, "Well, I've got this and I've got that," but I don't really have that many that are heavily smoked because I like the difference in them. I like to show people that it's like there's some savory ones, there's some earthy ones, there's a little bit of gentle smoke there as well.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of Tequila 101. In part two, Dino, Eduardo and I will be chatting through the range of flavors and variants within the tequila category, as well as looking into the future of tequila.